God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus my true child in a common faith grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you if anyone is above reproach the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply they may, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. But they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. May God bless the reading of his word. All right. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts make them pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. I have been looking forward to this morning for several months now, so it is a great joy an honor to be here with you this morning. Uh, it's my privilege to preach God's word for us for the next several weeks. So to, to those of you who are members of Philadelphia Baptist Church, thank you so much for your hospitality, uh, both to my family and to many from my church family who are here with us this morning. And to those of you from Christ Fellowship, uh, it's good to see you again this morning. Know that for, for all of you here, my wife and I, my kids, we have been praying fervently and frequently for all of you. For the next several weeks as we contemplate what church partnership might look like, you've been on our hearts and on our minds. 
Uh, if you're if you're a visitor, this is your first time and you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm really glad you're here, too. Uh, praise the Lord. This church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. And we're glad you're here that we would say there's no better place for you to be on a Sunday morning than with God's people worshiping the Lord together. So we're glad that you're here. A few months ago, when we decided uh, that I'd be preaching here for a few weeks, we decided I would have about four weeks or not about. I would have four weeks to preach with you to discern some of what this partnership might look like. And I'm really appreciative that I've got those four weeks. I do know some situations where there is one week and you show up and you there's maybe a search committee. You you preach, uh, you step out in the hallway, people vote and that's it. And that feels like just the most high pressured first date ever. Like it was a really good dinner and movie. Let's get married. So thank you for giving me several weeks. But as I've been thinking about, if I have four weeks here, and maybe even just only four weeks, if that's what the Lord wills, what are the things that I want ringing in the ears of Philadelphia Baptist Church and of my friends at Christ Fellowship Church? For four weeks, if I could say, that, what, what is it that I want you, us to be thinking and praying about, and even myself to be thinking and praying about as I've been praying for this church, what would those things be? And there are, the Bible's full of good options, the entire Bible is a great option. But my plan, Lord willing, over the next four weeks is for us to walk through the book of Titus together from start to finish. Titus is the, the second shortest of Paul's letters, but in these three chapters, and really the, the reason that I've kind of gravitated and landed on Titus is that Paul helpfully and just clearly lays out some of the markers of what he sees and what he says are important for healthy church life. What does it look like to have a healthy church? So much of our time, as you heard the word read here in Titus 1, is going to be spent looking at healthy leaders who it is that God has put in as elders in his church. In chapter 2, he's going to turn, we're going to look and kind of broaden out at healthy relationships, the people in the church interacting, loving, caring for one another. What, is, what does that look like? And then at the, the end of chapter 2, we'll slow down and, and look at a healthy gospel. I think that undergirds all of this in chapter 2 and chapter 3, the foundation stone upon which good practice and healthy church is built, a healthy gospel. And then finally, in chapter three, Paul goes on to address what it looks like for a church to have a healthy witness, not just within, but looking without. And so my hope and prayer is that over these next few weeks that we would look together at God's word, that we would. I went back and listened to David's sermon from last week. It was such an appropriate call to submit ourselves to God's word. I hope that's what we do. We just hear God's word preached and say, what is it that he would have for our for this church here? What would it look like for us? To hold fast to sound doctrine and then to live godly lives that flow out of that. Now, for the next four weeks, you can think about this as a journey through the book of Titus. And I want to be pretty clear that um, there are places where we are going to kind of leisurely stroll through the journey. And there's going to be a few places where we jog. Today might be a few places where we jog because it's a lot of text. Uh, I did at one point consider making six sermons out of Titus, but it feels slightly manipulative to say this is the end of sermon four. And if you want to hear the next two, you know how to vote. Um, so just know today there's a few places where we may go a little quickly through some portions of the text. But the good news is I live in Birmingham uh, that I do. I really my desire is to get to know the people at this church uh, and I love the Bible. 
And so those three things mean that if you have questions or there's things that we run through that you want to talk with me about, I would be happy to get together uh, to email, to talk on the phone, to have a meeting, whatever that would look like. Uh, sitting and talking about the Bible is like my happy place. So don't feel like you're inconveniencing me if, if you want to talk through this more. And because I've already talked a little bit about Titus as a brief introduction, we're going to run a little bit through these first four verses where we see an introduction to the book of Titus. These introductory statements can feel a little bit like you just kind of breeze through, get to the body, but, but I want to point out at least four things that are going to help us over the next several weeks as we think about the letter. And we'll start with looking at the sender, Paul. And interestingly, this is the only time in all of his letters that Paul introduces himself in exactly this way. He says that he is a servant of God. And if you go back and you read lots of his other letters, you'll see he says he's a servant of Christ. He says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ here. That's, that's frequent. But here he says he's a servant of God, and that's the only time he says that. And I think what, this is an intentional thing, because it should call your mind back to some of the servants of God that you read about in the Old Testament. I think men like Moses, men like David, who God calls my servant in 2 Samuel 7, men like the prophets, all of these men of God heard the word of the Lord faithfully, and then they proclaimed the word of the Lord faithfully. All of them even writing down the word of the Lord faithfully. So Paul here is, is showing at the outset in a, in a book where we're going to see, even at the end of this chapter, that there are competing, uh, competing messages, that there is false teaching. And Paul, from the beginning, is going to remind his readers and remind us that he has a spiritual pedigree. That he's in the line of the faithful servants of God who have gone before him, bringing God's message to God's people. The second thing we see, and we'll spend the most time here, is the purpose. Okay, so the purpose that Paul has to strengthen the faith of the elect through knowledge of the truth. In the face of opposition, Paul desires for this letter to give these church members, these churches, firm ground to stand upon. He wants to put steel in their spine so that they know what is coming can stand firm. And in many ways, what the, you see the purpose in verses 1 through 3, this is like the trailer at the beginning of the film you go see in the movie theater. This is coming attractions. So over the next several weeks and even today, we'll see this played out. But this, this truth that Paul has and wants to ground his readers in has certain qualities about it. It has a particular kind of shape. And that shape is godliness. In the marketplace of competing ideas with two messages and two teachings, Paul says that the genuine truth, the real thing, accords with godliness. And this is, in many ways, the, perhaps the primary teaching that we see in Titus. The real gospel of Jesus Christ produces real fruit that looks like godly living. Okay, so the gospel comes in, it does not just change what you think. Over and over, you read the, the gospel is meant to give new hearts. It's new desires and new loves. And flowing out of those new desires, not just what you think, but what you want and what God is doing in our hearts. We have new actions, ways that we tangible and profound impact on our lives that's seen through the gospel coming and taking root. So th- this has a shape of godliness. But beyond making our lives just look more like Christ here, this truth has an ultimate destination. Eternal life. It's preached in hope of eternal life. Elsewhere, Paul tells us, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That's 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. 
And so I just want to briefly, briefly pause here and tell you that this morning we are going to spend, because of the text, a fair amount of time talking about the characters and qualities of what a church should be looking for in the lives of their elders. But I do not want you to get confused that the goal of this sermon or even the goal of this book is that we just have good-looking lives here. That is not the ultimate destination. Okay, we are not merely looking for better lived lives here. We are looking for a more enduring life to come, a life that is eternal. And so if you are here this morning and you are new to Christianity, again, we're so glad you're here. If you've been away from church and you heard there was a guy preaching that you hadn't heard before and you're here just to check that out, we're, we're thankful you're here. But I don't want you to get confused that all of these character things we're talking about are the reason that we are here. We are here because we love and want to follow Christ. And that has bearing for what, our, what we look like, yes, but it also has bearing for where we want to spend eternity or where we believe he is taking us. So if you have questions about that, if you're, if you're unsure about the claims of Jesus, please find me afterwards. Find one of the elders. If you came here with a friend who's a Christian and just invited you to hear something new, go to lunch and ask them about this. What is this eternal life? And how might I get that? We hope for eternal life. We have hope. But that hope, Paul says, is not just kind of a happy wish that we have either. This is the, the third thing he says about this truth. This truth has a certain guarantee in God's promise. Hebrews 6.18 says that it's actually impossible for God to lie. So God has promised in Christ that those who turn to him in faith will have life. And there is no firmer steading, no firmer place to stand. No greater guarantee than the promise that God has made. And finally, this truth has an appointed witness. God's word through God's messengers. That's what Paul says in verse 3. At the proper time, God manifested this promise in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. It is his immense kindness that God told us what is true and he used messengers like the Apostle Paul. And thank God we believe that he didn't just stop there, but he still speaks through his living and abiding word through those who preach and teach and share the word. So this purpose statement is, you can think of it as the melody that's going to be playing throughout the book. One thing that you're kind of coming back to. This is what Paul is wanting to ingrain and the purpose that he's going to. But what we see over the next few weeks, these are harmonies that are just enforcing this. Everything we're talking about over these few weeks is because God wants, through this book, to strengthen your faith through the knowledge of his truth lived out in a godly life. Third thing we see in this introduction is the recipient, Titus. Uh, Titus is a Greek by ethnicity. We learned that in Galatians chapter 2. He's one of Paul's trusted traveling companions and co-workers. He, uh, I believe y'all have been studying at Philadelphia. You've studied through 2 Corinthians in the past semester. Uh, Titus is actually mentioned several times in 2 Corinthians where it appears that he's the messenger sent out by Paul to the Corinthian church. And that is not an easy job. That's not the thing that you send kind of B-team to. So Titus is trusted to bring a difficult word to the church in Corinth. And by God's grace, it seems like they listened. And so now Titus is here in Crete carrying out this command as well, which goes to the last part. We see the location, Crete, which Paul mentions not in verses one through four, but you see it in verse five where Titus is left there. Crete is an island in the Mediterranean made up of many different villages. 
And as you heard read in verse 12, it had a pretty seedy reputation, even among its own inhabitants. One of its poets, a prophet of their own, said some pretty scandalous things about them. Uh, You've probably heard the, the travel slogan, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's that kind of idea. It's an embracing of reputation for deviance. And Crete seems to be that kind of place. It has a reputation that seems to be well-earned and not far from the mark. But I, I actually, as, as I was thinking through this, one of the things I was encouraged by is that Paul has a letter written into this kind of place. Paul, Paul writes this and he knows that God's word does not return void. And so when, when he's writing to his friend Titus, what he's saying is not, man, Crete is so messed up, you just get out of there. Find some softer soil. Go find easier ground. Now oh, he says the, the word of the Lord will do its work even there, even in Crete. We should pray that and be, trust that God's word does his work no matter where it would be. Okay, so that's, that's the background, the purpose of the letter. Paul is writing this letter to strengthen the faith of the elect in these cities. And he's doing that by writing this letter to his co-worker Titus. And he begins his task of strengthening this church by talking about healthy leaders. He begins with a picture, a portrait of what these healthy leaders are in verses 1 through 9. Uh, I'm sure many of you, like me, started a Bible reading plan last Sunday. And if you're reading through the Bible, you almost always start with Genesis 1. So we're all on the same page. I don't have to do lots of introduction there. But as you read through Genesis 1, one of the things that you see so clearly is that God cares about order, right? He creates according to their kinds. He separates land and sea, waters from waters. He creates in an orderly manner. You can walk outside and see that. But God doesn't just care about order in his creation, but in his new creation, the church. He shows this order. One of the ways that he shows this order here is through the appointment of elders, which was Titus's task in Crete. And you'll notice in verse 5 that Titus is to appoint elders in every town. Paul has in mind here multiple elders in each town, or today what we might say multiple elders in each church. He's not looking for just like the most dynamic senior pastor, but for a group of men who love and serve the Lord and who want to love and serve the churches there. And then starting in verse 6, we're going to slow down some here in verse 6. Paul starts to list the qualifications of elders. And he begins with a summary qualification. He repeats this twice, so this is kind of the overarching banner over this list. These men should be above reproach. That's not that they're perfect, but he's a man who people want to emulate, and he has a character such that it spreads down into every part of his life. And he looks first at where he is above reproach as it relates to his family. Look there at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, there are a a few questions about these qualifications. I just want to address three of them. If you have more, again, come find me. I'm happy to talk more in depth. The first question is, must an elder have a family? I actually just got this question a little over a month ago. Uh, We, praise the Lord, we appointed three new elders at Christ Fellowship Church back in December. And one of these brothers is 
young 30s, he, he is married but does not have children. And a thoughtful church member, uh, when we nominated him for this, emailed me and just said, hey, I just have a question about this passage and what it means for this brother. Can he be an elder if his children don't exist, if he doesn't have children? I'm just going to give other answers, but the brief answer, I believe, is yes. Brothers who are childless or brothers who are single can serve as elders. Maybe the easiest argument, just to give briefly, is uh, if you read in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that he's single. It's a little difficult for me to imagine Paul making this list and excluding himself and maybe even one greater than Paul, right? Jesus, single, not married. I don't think you want to say we want these men to be Christ-like, but not Jesus. He's out. So I think that because he is listing this Ephesus, I think that most men in this place and this time would have been married and would have likely had children. He's not addressing this as a requirement, but a situation that most people would find themselves in. And so if a man has a wife, if he has children, how he cares for his household is a telling indicator of how he will care for the household of God. Second question, what is this phrase, the husband of one wife Mean. In the original language, in the Greek, it's just three words. It's a one-woman man, and there are faithful Bible teachers who disagree here, but I think what makes most sense in this context is that this is a requirement that this man be faithful to the wife, to his wife, if he is married. Okay, the state of his marriage is one where a wife is loved and cared for, where there is no hint or trace of this man looking elsewhere. Constantly glancing sideways, seeing if there are better options out there. And this makes perfect sense. Think about throughout the New Testament. What is, what is one of the metaphors used of the church over and over again? The church is the bride of Christ. And if an elder is meant to be a picture of Christ's likeness, of following and living in conformity to Christ, what kind of picture is he painting if he doesn't even remain faithful to his literal bride? How can such a man care and be care and be faithful then to the bride of Christ who he's meant to care for? So this man must be faithful to his wife if ever he hopes to care for God's bride. Third, what does Paul mean when he says his children are believers? Uh, there is a footnote in the Pew Bibles. I think some ESVs have them, some do not. But there's a footnote at that word believers that takes you down that says uh, his children are faithful. Okay, so it's, again, just a word that can mean a couple of different things, but thankfully I think what follows helps set this a little bit clearer. An elder's children should not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. A faithful father should be loving and leading his family in such a way that his children are submitting to that leadership and living in such a way that commends and shows his good care for him, for them. So Paul here is assessing an elder's children, I I believe, for faithfulness. Moreover, I'm not in charge of whether my my, my children become Christians. I can do all sorts of things for them. I want to point them to Jesus. I want to train them in the truth. But I cannot change a heart and have never been able to. That is God's work. So I believe that this qualification, I think probably faithful is is a little bit better translation here. He's looking and saying, is the leadership in his home among his children such that they are respectful, submissive to their father's loving leadership. And kids, this is a place where the Bible speaks to you in places. There's lots of places where it speaks to us, but the way that you are in your home, the way you respect, love, honor, and care, respond to your parents, it matters. 
It's the way that God would have you listen and respond to loving leadership in your home. I hope you see just from this quick list how different this is from the way we treat leadership in many other arenas of life. If a man is married and has children, the stewardship that he exercises in his home is indicative of the kind of leadership he will give in God's household. So if he is just very well behaved here on a Sunday morning, but if he is ill-tempered and domineering to his wife and children at home, you can bet that eventually at an elder's table or in a congregation he is going to be a bully. Is he passive at his house so that Chaos reigns, so that it doesn't look like he's there at all. Then how do you expect him to do the hard work of persuading and correcting and rebuking members of God's flock who need corrective discipline? Family life matters for an elder. So maybe maybe you can go and hire a CEO, uh, or this has been a debate even recently, a football coach or a personal trainer. And you may say, man, their family life is a wreck and I would not want my my family to look like that. But boy, do they get stuff done in the boardroom or on the field or in the gym. But we can't do that in God's house. And the stewardship that God requires a man's care for his wife and children, if he has them, is a training ground. And it's also a portrait of what his care for God's church will look like. So an elder must be above reproach. And one of the first places we look for that, when the first places we see that is in his family life. But beyond his family, an elder is meant to be above reproach in his character. Look with me at verses 7 through 8. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled. Upright, holy, and disciplined. The difficulty for this, these few verses is really not in interpretation. Okay, Not lots of questions about what this means. The difficulty is in the application. It's much harder to apply this. Because when we step back and look at this picture, what this elder looks like, it's a portrait of Christ-likeness, of growing in godliness. And again, this man is not perfect, but just look back over this list. Ask questions about what this man is like. Not arrogant. Does he view his position in the church or in his family and society as something that he can boast about before men? Or is it an opportunity for humble service? Not quick-tempered. Is he inclined to respond in rage at even slight offenses that come against him? Or is he peaceable? Not a drunkard. Does he take seriously the charge that he will not be mastered by anything other than Christ? Not violent. When he is threatened, does he resort to threats himself or fists even? Or is he peacemaking, actively seeking to make peace, turning the other cheek? Not greedy for gain. Does this man use people like tools and his plans to get things done, to acquire more stuff? Or does he rightly see that it is better to lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal? Hospitable. Is he willing to open up his family and his home, his money, his time, his very life open so that people might be welcomed in and find rest with him? Or does he wall himself off from others and simply wish people well without putting himself out? 
Love what is good. What is this man filling his mind and his time with? Are they things that are stoking his affection, his desire for godliness, for the Lord and for his people? Or do they turn him in on himself? Are they selfish desires? Or maybe even worthless things outside? Is this man self-controlled? Can he control himself when the temptation to sin comes knocking at his door? Or does he lack so much impulse control that he sways whatever way the wind takes him? Upright and holy. Is this man looking at God's perfect law and saying, I want to live like the Lord has called me? Or is he content to say, my neighbor is not as good a person as I am and therefore I'm good? Disciplined. Is he willing to put in the time, the grace-driven effort to know his Lord? Does he discipline his loves and his desires by God's word? Or would he be characterized as lazy, following the Lord when it's convenient and when it feels like it? Going elsewhere when he feels like something else. Again, not one of us is perfect, but this man is exemplary in these areas of his life. You should see in him the way that he is being transformed by the renewal of his mind to be a clear example of godliness, of Christ-like character. And just notice all the things that are not listed here. No discussion or question about how much power or influence he has in the culture. Nothing said about having deep pockets so that if the church needs financial help, he can just kind of keep them floating. Not one second about being an extrovert or an Enneagram 6, whatever that is. Not one word about having a full head of hair. Thank the Lord. Remember what Samuel had to learn from the Lord in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel goes to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as the coming king. And he sees the firstborn come and he says, that's got to be the one. He has all the look about him. He's tall, he's handsome, he's muscular. All the things just make sense. But what does the Lord tell Samuel? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In the job qualifications of a faithful elder, character is king. All the competence in the world, all the charisma that you can muster, having the right convictions and beliefs, those don't make up for a lack of godly character. Character is king. One last encouragement I want to give from this list and an application. Uh, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson, he, he remarks that Uh, One of the maybe the most remarkable thing about this list is just how unremarkable it is. So if you read through the rest of the New Testament, you're going to see that growth in these areas is not just meant for the super Christians. Okay, this is not an elders list because only elders should be doing this. This is a list given to God's people and it's just taking the one another's and how to live life as a Christian from all over the New Testament and saying this man must be exemplary in this. But it's something that all Christians should be striving for, trying to live out. And so while he is, and this, this does have specific application for elders and churches, I don't think it's illegitimate to look back at this list and for all of us who follow Christ to ask, how are we doing in these areas? Maybe even over lunch, if you're looking for some, some homework, uh, if you want to talk about this over lunch or this afternoon, flip back to this list. Use it for prayer this week. Lord, help me to be self-controlled. Guard my tongue from anger. Keep me from greed in my heart. 
Kids, if there's something you don't understand in this list, or there's a question, why, is the, why would this thing be important? This is a great thing to ask your parents about. And adults, men and women, ask the Lord to reveal places in your life where you ought to strive by his grace to be molded more into the image of Christ. Now, while character is king, these attributes are unremarkable. There are a few additional qualifications for elders that I'm just going to call qualifications of competency. Okay, so the man must have upstanding character, but he must also be able to carry out a certain task to serve as an elder. Look there at verse 9, you'll see these spelled out. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You kind of break down these competencies maybe into three diagnostic questions. Number one, is he a faithful learner? The first thing, he receives the trustworthy word of the Lord as it is taught to him. He hears it, he understands it, he obeys it. That's the list of character qualifications it's showing. And then he holds fast to it. It doesn't require that he be the smartest or the cleverest, but it does require that he gives himself to knowing and treasuring and guarding the truth. And then second, is he a faithful teacher? That little conjunction, so that, in verse 9 is telling us that this knowledge is not simply so that you can have great answers for Bible trivia or affirm all the statements of faith in your church, uh, the statements of your church's statement of faith. This man is not a cul-de-sac where truth comes in. He's learning, just soaking it up, but it just kind of stays there. This man is a conduit. Things come in and they're going out. He's learning and holding fast and then turning around and teaching others what is true from God's word. And finally, is he a faithful rebuker? And I don't know if rebuker is a real word, but just go with me. You may hear those first two qualifications, learning, teaching. That sounds great. I'm up for it. Sign me up. But there is a flip side to giving instruction and sound doctrine that is much less appealing. And elders, leaders in the church must be willing and able to clearly stand for truth. Even when it means we have difficult conversations with those who would teach or who would follow false doctrine. One commentator put it this way. It is well been said that all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Elders must not be do nothing good men. They must be willing to confront false teachers. And we'll see in just a minute why this hard ministry is so important in Crete. I'm sure you can think of a host of reasons why it's important today. But an elder doesn't just embrace the parts of his calling that are going to earn him respect and that he thinks are easy. He must also stand in the gap and give warning and clear rebuke to those who would lead others astray or to those who are following them. These qualifications of being above reproach and family and character and competency, they are the starting point for serving as an elder. And I've intentionally tried to slow down some here because there are so many ways that we can and should take this and apply it. Maybe particularly at this point in the life of Philadelphia Baptist Church, this list is an important reminder. It has been, I hope it benefits you, it has been uh, incredibly good for me to go back over this list as I pray and think about serving as an elder at Christ Fellowship and potentially serving as an elder here. So let me just begin with a question for you as a church. What kind of leadership are you looking for? What kind of leadership are you following and where is it leading you? There was an article in the past several weeks about the surprising turnaround of Barnes & Noble. 
like all bookstores, Barnes and Noble has struggled to kind of keep up with the digital revolution. Uh, they have, if you stepped into Barnes and Noble in the past, like I've been in a long time, but if you go for like five or ten years, there was a point where it felt like half the store was not books. It was knickknacks and little gadgets that you could go buy. Tried that for a while. They uh, they tried the Nook to compete with Kindle, that almost is out of existence now. They even had, I didn't even know this, but for a while they tried to make standalone restaurants, Barnes and Noble Kitchen, all in an attempt to try to make ends meet. But in August of 2019, the store appointed a new CEO and the company is enjoying somewhat of a revival. So this year, even in 2023, they're planning on opening 30 additional stores, outpacing their closings for the first time in years. And the author of this article writes to this kind of reflecting about what's what's happened at Barnes and Noble. I now have a rule of thumb. There is no substitute for good decisions at the top and no remedy for stupid ones. It's really that simple. When the CEO makes foolish blunders, all the wisdom and hard work of everyone else in the company is insufficient to compensate. You only fix these problems by starting at the top. Now, this analogy is certainly not perfect. A church is not a business. Faithfulness is not measured by more people in chairs or growing budgets and the like. And I certainly don't mean to think that Philadelphia is really bad and needs something really good. I'm sure, thank, uh, Shannon, I'm Ryan. Nice to meet you. Uh, thank you for your prayer. I've, I've just been encouraged by the interaction I've had with your elders. I'm grateful for the four brothers who have led your church for so long. They've reached out and been hospitable to my family in a, in a really trying time. In a really, really good time, but a time that feels fraught with so many things. So you have men who are leading you well. And so if the analogy is not perfect, just know that the principle does carry. The elders who you follow, they're not perfect men. They will not be perfect men. But are they men? Uh, they, they will be men who are making disciples. And they're making disciples of something. And so you just have to ask, what are they making disciples of? Is it disciples of Jesus? Is it disciples of Christ's likeness? Or do they not meet these characteristics? Are they making disciples of something or someone else? Who are you following? One more question for the church just at large. What do you think is important? What's the most important thing? Uh, Paul wants to establish healthy churches here on Crete, and I'm just struck that he launches into this list of qualifications for elders. If you ask what's important to Paul, I don't think he says marketing is the, the main thing. We need to get a good church going in Crete, and we need a strategy for that. We need some programs so that the kids can go have some place to go. He would say what you need is one of the most crucial elements is a group of elders who have the aroma of Christ about them. Who are zealous to lead people in that direction. And there is nothing wrong with a good website where the members of Christ Fellowship are thankful for a good website for Philadelphia Baptist Church. I'll tell you that much. There's nothing wrong with ministry programs that train children, music that honors Christ. But it is easy, sadly easy, to neglect the importance of the way a group of faithful elders are intended by God to lead people into more godliness. This is God's plan and his order. And then one last question. I do think this, especially these character qualifications, everyone, ask yourself, how am I doing in that? I do have a particular application that I've been thinking through for my own church and thinking through for you, and this is for men in particular. And the question is, do you aspire to serve as an elder? So the, the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, 1 says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And one of the things that we have prayed, that I've prayed for the past eight years at Christ Fellowship, is that the Lord would continually raise up men who want to serve our church as elders. God has been answering that prayer. And as I've turned my attention and affections and thoughts toward Philadelphia, I've been praying that for your church as well. 
And if I can press just a little bit more, if you say, I, I don't aspire to be an elder, I just want to ask you, why, why is that? And there may be some good reasons for that. It may just be a, a busy time of life. You may serve because you think, uh, I have other responsibilities and too many spinning plates. I understand that. But, but if you say, I don't want to serve because I just don't think I'm, I'm disqualified because of my pride. Or if somebody stepped into my house on a Tuesday evening, I'm just not sure that they would say that I could serve this way. Or would you say, I'm, I'm growing and I have a limited grasp of God's word. It's still early in the year and I just want to maybe humbly suggest that perhaps this is where God would have you say, how can I follow the Lord more faithfully in the days and weeks to come? Just go back over here. Find, find a brother in this church or your, your wife and say, if you're married, and say, I want to grow in this area and I want you to help me. It would be a wonderful way to apply this to your life. Do you aspire to be an elder? Now, healthy elders are a central ingredient in supporting sound doctrine and sound living in the church, both then and now. And if we see a portrait of healthy elders in verses 5 through 9, what we see in the rest of the chapter is a need for healthy elders. The need for healthy elders. Look with me down at verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So why does Titus need to establish elders? Because there are, and this word is maybe terrifying, there are many, many opponents who are doing damage to the church in a variety of ways. These are anti-elders. They are making disciples, but they don't look like Christ. For one, these elders are setting a poor example. Just take that list from 5 through 9 and look at what happens in these verses. Elders' children are supposed to be uh, submissive, not insubordinate. These opponents themselves are insubordinate. Elders are not greedy for gain. These opponents are teaching for shameful gain. Elders are disciplined and self-controlled. These are said to be lazy gluttons. Have you ever set out to learn something for the first time and you taught, you learned it the wrong way? Like you, you hold a pencil and... Your hand just looks all crazy when you're doing it. It's so hard to unlearn those things. You learn an instrument and you just say, like, you're holding your position all wrong. And a teacher has to come in and say, you have to unlearn that first and then we'll get back to basics. Paul is saying that type of thing. Those who are entrenched in this, following this type of leader, they start entrenching themselves in places that Paul says, we need to silence the opponents in this church from setting a poor example. And not only are their lives problematic, but their teaching is also false. They are empty talkers. In verse 11, you see they're teaching what they ought not to teach. And we don't exactly know what this is. It seems to have something to do with uh, perhaps circumcision you see in verse 10, Jewish myths in verse 14. So some sort of Jewish teaching. But whatever it is, tragically, people are following. And that's the situation in Crete. And so Paul says the churches need elders. There are anti-elders out there, and the need for the church is healthy, sound elders, leading in sound teaching. And the elders now have a responsibility. For the good of the church, the elders must silence these false teachers. 
Elders are under shepherds. They're tenders of God's flock. And when a wolf comes in to snatch sheep away, he does whatever he can to make sure the wolf does not have access to the sheep. For the elders, that would likely look like publicly warning the church against the teaching, maybe even making specific mention of those who are teaching these things. This is a decade ago, but a Christian hip-hop artist, Shy Lin, got himself into some trouble. He wrote a song called False Teachers. The lyrics, if you read them, you may say, like, well, that's nothing there. But then in the chorus at the very end, he actually starts naming people. It's a catchy chorus, and it gets going. Uh, Joel Osteen is a false teacher. Creflo Dollar is a false teacher. Kenneth Copeland is a false teacher. And others beside that. And now, certainly that was a public way to go about this, but I think that concern, that burden, is for those who are in danger of following these people. Posting a warning sign. This one is a quasi-gospel, one you should not follow. And the task of a faithful elder like this is to warn and protect his sheep from being led astray. And beyond that, the elder should rebuke those who are following, and even as he is able, those who are promoting false teaching. It should show where, take, take that false teaching and just follow it to where it ends. What happens if you keep following this? And maybe one of the saddest sentences in this passage is there at the beginning of verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. These these opponents are a problem because they are deceiving others. But beyond deceiving others, many of them are self-deceived. Many of them claim to know God with their mouths, but their actions bear out that they don't know him at all. And so correction and rebuke is not simply meant to humiliate or to shame, but to call people back. It's meant to lovingly point that if this way of false teaching, it may lead to temporary gain, but its end is eternal loss. Ministry of the elders is life and death in this matter. It's vitally and even eternally critical. This may not be the place where you would start your blueprint for a healthy church. There are a lot more flashy ways to draw a crowd, but in God's wisdom, he has called for godly men to faithfully teach and rebuke, all the while pointing both in their life and in their doctrine to the one perfect man, Jesus Christ. And that is, I believe, the secret, the key. In the article about Barnes & Noble, the, the author says that the new CEO has something that actually sets him out from his predecessors. The people before him have led huge companies. They have huge CVs. They've done great things. But this author says that this man's superpower is that he loves books. And because he loves books, he does things in the store to highlight books. Likewise, elders are not extraordinary. They are not super Christians. If If they have a superpower... If you want to call it that, it's that they love and highlight Jesus. They don't desire their own gain. They don't want their own name to be lifted high. But in their teaching and in their life and their families and the way that they stand for the truth, they can say and their hope is that they repeat with John the Baptist. He, Jesus, must become greater and I must become less. Do you want to be that kind of person? And are you following that kind of healthy leader? Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you have loved and cared for your church. We even thank you, we, we especially this morning, thank you for the ministry and the way that you've cared for this church, the men that you've brought here. 
And we pray, God, that you would, through loving leadership, reflect Jesus to a watching world, to those in and out of the church. We ask this all in his name. Amen.